why I think sometimes the phenomena we're seeing, how it's getting harder to move up for a lot of people at, you know, lower or even stay at middle class. Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, in a more pure capitalistic society, it is just natural mm -hmm. that wealth and resources, they get sucked upwards. Mm -hmm. But that's the word is called siphoning. But it's like there's a straw sucking wealth resources all the way to the top. This is from Ronald Reagan, Supply Side Economics. Well, this, it is, is, this it, is part of the problem. It is basically science. You know, this if you have a more pure capitalistic system, this is how it's going to work. Mm. It will aggregate naturally upwards. And then, but to balance that in a lot of other countries, a lot of other societies, mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. the government, right? Redistribute yeah. the wealth through a tax system. Yeah. But the problem in recent years, at least in the U.S., is that the tech system is rigged toward the rich. You know, the rich end up paying such a smaller percentage mm. through all kinds of ways than like common workers, which does not make sense. And it's because the people in power, they are, I guess they're not prone to redividing that wealth. I yes. agree with you that it does not make sense, but they do have arguments on how they try to justify it. Mm -hmm. So the rich who hire all their own lawyers and PR people and buy politicians, the arguments that they distribute to the population is, oh, if the rich are taxed less, they will keep their businesses in the United States. They will stay in the United States as opposed to going somewhere where the taxes are lower. And the consequence will be that they spend more and hire more people in the United States. Don't punish us rich people or we'll run away. That's the primary argument that they put forward mm -hmm. when the middle class and the lower class are like, we want to raise taxes on the rich. Mm. The rich will just say, well, if you tax us, we'll just leave. You know, Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason, and today with me is Bebe. Hi. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? Wonderful. Although it's very hot. I know. I know. Let's get this going before I melt into a puddle. Oh, yeah. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Hey, we got an email, baby. Oh, yay. From where? It's from Japan. So oh. I wanted to read this. It's okay. Yes. And then we can comment on it. Hello, I'm Makiko Yamaguchi. I'm born and raised in Japan. I've currently Hi. found your podcast and love them so much. Thank you for your providing such great contents every time. Oh, how nice. Well, in a theme of your why do Americans pay more for the same medicine, you mentioned Japanese insurance system. If I listen correctly, we have some very strict regulations in terms of getting insurance, hmm. but we don't have such a thing because it's mandatory. Insurance Be is mandatory, right? I think he means national insurance. I read this a couple times. Oh. Okay. The only requirement mm. is paying fees. Having said that, mm. there are private insurance companies offering varieties of services here. Some of their requirements are what you mentioned in the program, like how many tobacco you smoke or whether you have some risk of getting sick or not. Right. However, since these are private, it's totally up to us. Oh. Japanese government can't deny us depending on our physical condition. So mm. I think he's correcting me saying uh, that you have to be not a smoker. But thank you for reading my letter. Mm. I really love your show and I'm looking forward to finding out another interesting facts of the world. Thank you, Makiko Yamaguchi. How nice. Thank you so much, Makiko, for writing us this message. Yeah. And I just want to tell you that 
I love Japanese stationery. <laughs> I would go to Japan just to shop for pens and like notebooks and just paper products. And of course, the food、mm. and the scenery. Oh, I'm so happy that people are writing to us. Please、yeah. write to us more. Thank you, Makiko. Yeah, if you want us to read your letter on the bridge, please email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. Yeah, inflation tops the charts of issues plaguing America and the UK for that matter, with 77% of Republicans and 52% of Democrats saying that it is a very big problem, inflation, according to recent research from Pew Research Center. While Biden says the economy is roaring, the least well off are worse off than in any period in recent US history. And Florida is now, quote,、hmm. now America's inflation hotspot, according to CNN. With this in mind, we return with Bebe to make sense of the plight of those scratching by. Me making sense of all this world issues. I, yeah, I can only make sense of this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, but I think <laughs> what you're saying makes sense, right?、Mm. High inflation. Well, if only Europe could still buy oil and other, you know, gas and other things they must need from somewhere closer、mm. than from the US, I think prices would be cheaper. Yeah. And I think Biden,、uh, President Biden, wasn't really lying. When he said that the economy was roaring, the numbers are good, but it's only roaring for a very small percent of the population. Well, yeah, well, with, with unemployment, when people stop looking for a job, I think it's after either three or six months, the, they stop counting them、mm. as unemployed. So if someone's just laying flat, right, in America, And they're just like hanging out in their mom's house and living there because they've given up on working a service job where people treat them cr like crap for minimum wage.、Hmm. Then they are not counted if they stop looking for a job. Okay. So they're not even like figured into the whole scene.、Okay. Yeah. So you could say, oh, unemployment's great when it's actually not because there are a lot of service jobs that can't find applicants right now.、Hmm. And there's a reason for that. They're not paying them well. And、enough. also, this is a global phenomenon where everywhere, We hear that you know, the economy is declining, and not just in one or a few countries, it's like global. But then at the same time, the world's richest man is the head of LV, which is the luxury brand.、Mm. You know, does that make sense to people?、Mm -hmm. Of course, that points out the problem we have, right? How wealth is divided, not just in、yeah. America, but also around the globe. So, well, it's not just inflation. I wanted to talk about the class divide here because ooh, I think it affects a lot of people. Class divide. And you know, I love statistics. And this is from Statista. Right. So, I have a graph here from Statista, and this is 2021 versus 1970. You know, aggregate income in three classes low income, middle income, and high income.、Mm. The share of people in 1970 who were considered low income was 25% of the population of the United States. But in now it is 29% of the population of the United States. So we have、okay. an increase in 4% of the population who are now identified as low income.、Mm. That is roughly 20 million more people who are no longer part of the middle class. They drop down to lower income class. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. But there,、uh, expect some changes in the high income bracket too. Possibly the number has become the high income bracket. Interestingly, the share of people went up. Okay. So instead of 14% of people being identified as high income, now there are 21%, but they also changed the metric. And now that 21, this gets, I think, a lot of people mad. That 21% of people in America who are identified as high income have 50% of all income. 50%. 
They own 50%. Yeah. So 21% own 50% of America's wealth. You know what? That's actually lower than I expected. Hmm. I think they probably own more. And also one interesting thing that, you know, you can take this as a joke if you want. Mm -hmm. We know there's all kinds of lists, like say Forbes list, the richest people around the world. Yeah, yeah. But it turned out, well, that these are actually not the richest people in the world. Like, we don't even know about the richest people in the world because they're not on the list. Really? And those are the ones. How are they not on the list? I'm confused. Well, they are the richest people. And they're so rich that they won't even mess with us. <laughs> you know, they're not even counted as part of our population. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, but you can... I was learning about how to hide your income so that you didn't have to pay taxes. I don't do this, but I was curious about how it's done. And so you create like an offshore bank account that is a trust fund. And then that trust fund is a delegated to like a bank manager who gives you a certain amount of money at certain times. And like base and that money isn't actually yours. It's controlled by like a business that's a shell corporate. It's really complicated. So actually, there are all kinds of ways. their money yeah. isn't technically even theirs. It's just controlled. The really, really wealthy people like who control, I don't know, a huge percentage of the world's wealth. They are invisible. Invisible. Okay. The ones we can see, they are very wealthy in our eyes, but they are not the wealthiest. But, you know. Imagine being wealthy enough to be able to build an invisibility cloak. Yeah. They could be standing right here. And, you know, speaking <laughs> of class, this is a huge topic. And I have a book called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System by Paul Fussell, hmm. who used to teach in UPenn. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of this book? I haven't heard of this book, but I've heard a lot about class in America. Yeah, I think it came out in the 80s, 1983, first copy. Mm. And do you mind if I share a few paragraphs about class? Please do. Please do. Because how do you define class, right? Mm -hmm. Some people define it as income, but it turned out that people... A different in different classes might define it differently. Mm -hmm. So here's a, a few paragraphs from page 16. He said, actually, you reveal a great deal about your social class by the amount of annoyance or fury you feel when the subject is brought up. Hmm. A tendency to get very anxious suggests that you are middle class and nervous about slipping down a run or two. On the other hand, upper class people love the topic to come up. The more attention paid to the matter, the better off they seem to be. Hmm. Politarians generally don't mind discussions of the subject because they know they can do little to alter their class identity. And thus the whole class matter is likely to seem like a joke to them. The upper classes, fatuous in their empty aristocratic pretentiousness, the middles loathsome in their anxious gentility, it is the middle class that is highly class sensitive and sometimes class scared to death. Now, just as you mentioned, about 4% of the U.S. population right, fell from the middle to the lower class. And I think more people are mm -hmm. you know, very anxious about if that will happen to them. And also another interesting paragraph. Mm -hmm. If you reveal your class by your outreach at the very topic, you reveal it also by the way you define the thing that is outraging you. At the bottom, people tend to believe that class is defined by the amount of money you have. In the middle, people grant that money has something to do with it, mm -hmm. but think education and the kind of work you do are the most equally important. And nearer the top, people perceive that taste, values, ideas, style, and behavior are indispensable criteria of class, regardless of money or occupation or education. Interesting, huh? If I'm a scraping by lower middle class person, but I go to the symphony, then I'm high class. That's fantastic. Great. Baby, I'm off to the National Center for the Performing Arts. I 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And that you will be like eating, uh, I don't know, toast for the next two weeks to make up for the money. <laughs> <laughs> so by just by the way, how you define class, you know, which class you belong to can reveal a lot about which class you actually belong to. But I think that's kind of a people don't talk about this a lot in the US, at least not when I was living there. Right. People sort of like the people you hang out with, they sort of know, like either I'm sort of in the middle class or the people who are really rich. They're obviously in, in the upper class. But I guess so people, it's not really part of daily conversation. Mm. Do you think? I actually, it was really interesting. I used to sit in a cafe with my dad and they would talk about class all the time. What? But what was really interesting is that they didn't really know about which party represented what clearly, you know, they weren't like they didn't have a time. They were working class, real workers. They didn't really have time to sit around and discuss the nuances of it. So they would end up agreeing with things that mm. both parties said at different points or different philosophies, mm. different ideologies. And they didn't even know where they were coming from, more like speculations. But what they knew was this is not fair, that the system was not fair. There was a mm -hmm. there was a clear sense of these working class people, mm. you know, construction workers, plumbers, framers, uh, people who worked hard, you know, 50 hours a week, really hard laborers. They knew that it wasn't fair that some people had everything and other people had nothing. Mm, but from my understanding, I heard that, let's say, construction workers are actually paid relatively well, but like, you know, not super high wages but decent wages that's yeah right? that's middle class if you're making middle minimum class. wage okay. full-time you are lower class as most states you can't afford you're yeah. deciding which bills you can afford to pay and which ones maybe you can't pay this month or you're deciding which meals to skip or you're figuring out you know what's the cheapest possible meal that i can have for the next week and before i reward myself with one day of fast food or something hmm. so and the day after opera for jason so for construction <laughs> workers they are essentially you know middle class the working class yeah working yeah. middle class and also in, from this book class on page 18 something special about america it says it should be a serious subject in america especially because here we lack a convenient system of inherited titles ranks and honors and each generation has to define the hierarchies all over again. And speaking of uh, generations, I think when we talk about class, it's not a one generation topic, right? Usually we are talking about, we're actually talking about social mobility across generations mm. uh, because changing of class, it takes time. And I think that's something I understood, you know, just in recent years, how hard it is to actually, mm -hmm. you know, go up because we most people are talking about, you know, how to go up the ladder along the social class right? instead of going down for their kids. Yeah. I want my kids to be better off than me. Right. Right. And there's, some, you know, a lot of discussions regarding this in a Chinese society too. Uh, people devote so much to education. Right. Mm. And they kind of want to equip their child, their children with whatever they can so that they can go up social mobility wise. So so that's the key here. And the something rather strange we have been witnessing in the U.S. is that it's getting harder for the younger generation to make it, you know, to achieve the standard of living of their parents. And when I first read that a few years ago, I was literally shocked. I couldn't believe it mm -hmm. because born in this age in China, born in the 1980s, we are the generation where we witnessed how the country became stronger and stronger. And also it was, a uh, you know, my th these three generations, my grandparents, my mom and my generation. Mm -hmm. This is the time of the greatest social mobility in China. My grandparents, you know, and also my parents when they were younger. 
were farmers mm-hmm. if it was not because of a revolution mm-hmm. back in the days in China, the founding of the new China and the changing of the land ownership. You know, my parents would still be farming and I'm probably still in a farm somewhere. But because of all the changes in the social, I guess, in the society, everything kind of went back to level ground again. And my parents, kids from the countryside, mm-hmm. had better chances in education. And my, you know, they end up my aunts and uncles, the whole generation, a lot of them who studied hard all went to universities. And that's from a farmer family and really, really good universities because of the Gaokao system. You know, it's completely oblivious to who you are, where you are from. It just checks your score number. So they really made it. And then, of course, they had even opportunities to study abroad and you know, which made my life starting a whole lot higher. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about social mobility and I was thinking about this whole class topic, Mm -hmm. I kind of went back and thought a little bit about Chinese history, the contemporary Chinese history and all those revolutions and things kind of made more sense to me now. Because sometimes it takes that kind of power of change to redivide resources so that people at the bottom would have a chance of making it, you know, on their way out. Have I been digressing too much? No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense and it's much richer and more complicated than I expected our conversation to go. You're listening to The Bridge. Obviously, we had a similar period in the 1940s and 50s and 60s in the United States when the United States came into its own. But during my lifetime, there was an enormous pressure in my generation on people to go to university. Mm. And that was going to be the way that millions of people changed their class identities. Right. And instead, a lot of these people came out and now there's $2 trillion student loan problem and people are drowning in debt who work oh. really hard, got straight A's and got into the best programs. They're suffering the most in fact. Mm. And so I think what's bizarre is that two things. Number one, people worked really hard to try to change their class and it didn't work. And number two, that a lot of people started talking about redefining class as a consequence of education. So, oh, you have a bachelor's degree. Now you're a middle class, even though that same person with a bachelor's degree can't afford to pay their bills just like someone who's, you know, lower middle class and about to become homeless. They're in the same exact situation owing to the fact that they have to pay like a thousand dollar bill on top of rent every single month. So it's very interesting that the ability to change your status in the United States Hmm. was defined in the 1980s and the 1990s for millions of Americans. And then those millions of Americans took those steps ended up not moving forward in, you know, the chain of wealth. That's an interesting twist, because uh, from what I read, there is a clear division of income, you know, between the parts of population who had a bachelor's degree and who do not have a bachelor's degree. That's like a, a huge defining point. But then exactly. They have to pay it out. Yes, they are weighed down. By So I guess that points to some problems with, well, of course, we know that how expensive higher education it is in the U.S. If you treat it like a business, right? Because in China, in our minds, education shouldn't be treated as a business. Yeah, in the U.S. You know, it shouldn't function with pure uh, capitalistic means of uh, maximizing profit. But that's a whole nother topic. Mm. But thinking of social mobility and class, I had um, mm. a few thoughts about the U.S., why I think sometimes the phenomena we're seeing, how it's getting harder to move up for a lot of people at, you know, lower or even stay at middle class. Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, 
in a more pure capitalistic society, it is just natural mm -hmm. that wealth and resources, they get sucked upwards. Mm -hmm. But that's the word is called siphoning. But it's like there's a straw sucking wealth resources all the way to the top. This is from Ronald Reagan, Supply Side Economics. Well, this it is, is it, this is part of the problem. It is basically science. You know, this if you have a more pure capitalistic system, this is how it's going to work. Mm. It will aggregate naturally upwards. And then but to balance that in a lot of other countries, a lot of other societies, mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. the government, right? Redistribute yeah. the wealth through a tax system. Yeah. But the problem in recent years, at least in the U.S., is that the tech system is rigged toward the rich. You know, the rich end up paying such a smaller percentage mm. through all kinds of ways than like common workers, which does not make sense. And it's because the people in power, they are, I guess they're not prone to redividing that wealth. I yes. agree with you that it does not make sense, but they do have arguments on how they try to justify it. Mm -hmm. So the rich who hire all their own lawyers and PR people and buy politicians, the arguments that they distribute to the population is, oh, if the rich are taxed less, they will keep their businesses in the United States. They will stay in the United States as opposed to going somewhere where the taxes are lower. And the consequence will be that they spend more and hire more people in the United States. Don't punish us rich people or we'll run away. That's the primary argument that they put forward mm -hmm. when the middle class and the lower class are like, we want to raise taxes on the rich. Mm -hmm. The rich will just say, well, if you tax us, we'll just leave. You know, in the very famous book, Capitalism, in the book Capital in the 21st century, after, I don't know, 500, 800 pages, the conclusion is that we should have a global tax on the rich. So that no matter where they go. I'm for it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so <laughs> let's do it. I'm just stating my thoughts on why things are not working in this regard in the U.S. So hmm. the tech system is a problem so that wealth can be redistributed fairly. And then another problem, I think, is the education system. I mean, the public education system, not like all over the country, but in a fair, mm -hmm. I guess, amount of public schools, the situation can be quite frustrating. Right. Mm. And it's not something that can be easily fixed by putting more money into the system, although that probably will help because it's related to other social issues. Like if you are if there are a lot of uh, single parent families, a lot of uh, family domestic violence. And also on top of that, you have guns and drugs. It's hard for kids to concentrate mm. and it's hard for you know, families who are not doing well yeah. to support their children to move out of that hole. Right. To go up. Yeah. And also something with the the way welfare is distributed in the U.S. is that it, a lot of times seems like it's just in a form of money, right? Let's say for schools, they'll give you money for what, like more iPads, mm -hmm. new mm -hmm. systems, new boards and new computers. But that's actually not the most important part. You know, they need to pay teachers more. They need to change the whole, I guess, living and studying environment for the kids. It's not something that can be easily solved with just dumping more money into the system. Although I think teachers can truly be paid better. Mm -hmm. And also when it comes to higher education, now this is something drastically different from uh, between the U.S. and China, is that college entrance to really, really top schools in the U.S. can be influenced by, let's say, donations, right? Or connections. If your father donated a whole building to this particular school, I guess you, Jason, getting into, you know, Harvard or Princeton might not be too big of a problem, right? Yeah. So 
that's something that can be influenced. This is actually on this point. There's a debate at Harvard. There are mm-hmm. several different debates about admission at Harvard all the time because so many people are incredibly invested in getting into this one institution. Mm-hmm. And there's one that's going on about race, but there's also another one going on about I can't remember the word exactly, but it's I think it's heritage. So your dad went to Harvard or your mom went to Harvard. So you have a much higher probability of getting into Harvard owing to the fact that you have someone mm-hmm. in your family who already went. And yeah. They're actually now considering removing this so that even if your dad got into Harvard, it should have no bearing on whether or not you get in. Because they do ask you on the application form, like, do you have anyone in the family, like your cousin, your parents, your sister who went to the school? They will usually ask you, right? Yeah. So that is another. It's creating uh, a system of people who are all granted access because they had a, a grandfather or something who got into Harvard. It's not fair. It's just something extra because there's no set system. Well, here in China, uh, the college entrance exam is rather rigid. I mean, it's been criticized for years and decades for how rigid it is, how, you know, inflexible. But there is a reason for that because you can't tweak the system. I appreciate the system in China a lot. You know, we should also point out, just like in the United States, where certain minorities are given an advantage. In China, that is true also. If you are from certain minority groups, or maybe it's all of them, or you're from certain poor regions, you actually get bumps on your score. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your Gaokao gets added to so that you have a higher probability of getting into a better university. Right. Maybe like by a few points or a a few, I don't know. It's not like you get lumped like a hundred more. It's not night and day, but (laughs) it definitely does help. So if you studied hard and you got a pretty good score, now you have a very good score. Yeah, but it's true that the method is so that the whole country is more balanced, Mm. right? Like the more populated provinces might have few more people who enter, you know, better universities because there's just so many more people. Anyhow, so it's two completely different systems for entering. Well, interestingly, America doesn't have a system. It's too fluid. America's system is that. So too many loopholes. Every university, university system or state system makes its own rules. Mm. So that's something else. And also something I found quite interesting is how when you think about it, almost everything can be bought and sold in the U.S., even government official like posts hmm. now or influenced. In you know, way. it's interesting that you brought this up because I understand both sides. I'd like to I know we're going to demolish this because I think we should. And it's awful that they're able to do it. But I actually had someone explain to me why it is that lobbying, which is illegal in other countries, is legal openly in the United States. They mm-hmm. explained it like this. Instead of having corruption hidden behind closed doors, they put corruption out in front of everyone so everyone can see it. Well, (laughs) that is a very blatant way of uh, explaining all this. I thought it's also admitting that basically it's corruption. No, too. I thought you were going to say something truly enlightening, Jason. I was Sorry, like, no. She, he was going to solve this huge problem. Yeah, when <laughs> Raython buys, puts, donates money, Raython is a military company. They make bombs and stuff. When mm-hmm. they essentially give millions of dollars to both parties, candidate, that way, no matter who gets in, they can say, hey, we gave you $3 million. Right. That's not much. Like, let's say billions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so back to what I was saying. In a way, government posts and even like posts for being diplomats can be bought in a way or influenced by the amount of money you have. Mm. And also elections. I mean, that's just out in the open, right? Founded by donors. Yeah. So all of these elements coming together, I think it's hard to redistribute resources and redistribute opportunities for the people who are toward the at the bottom. 
right? Who don't have the connections, who do not have the money, and who do not even have the environment mm -hmm. to the calm environment to study hard so that they can move up the social ladder. And on, on top of that, also, it's um, the way the U.S. helps the poor mm. is generous in a way, right? We have the food stamp. Poor kids get free lunches from school and also like public schools is pretty free, right? Including school buses and all that. So mm -hmm. it seems to be pretty good. But then at the same time, especially during um, COVID-19, you see how the government just print money and give it out. It's generous. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, yeah, it's right. almost a little bit thoughtless in the way they're helping the poor. You know, it's like, I'll just give you money. You calm down. And try to and vote for me, you know, like right, and try not to make a fuss. But mm. it's a stark comparison mm -hmm. to the way of property elevation here in China, where they are looking for methods for people to and find vote a for way me in the next themselves. election cycle instead of just <laughs> dumping money and you know to help them get over things temporarily. So I guess what I thought about social classes mm -hmm. and how a social mobility in the U.S. These are some of the things. Yeah that came to mind. And also, I have the general feeling that no one in power is really trying to make it better, to redistribute wealth and resources a little bit better. I think they're stuck in a creative rut. And there's a lot of a very single-minded approach to governing the United States at this point. I'd like to talk a little bit about the distribution of wealth that I see in the United States and sure. in China, and a little bit about some of the things that China does differently that leaders in the United States could consider adopting. When you look at the United States, oftentimes they're closing libraries, they're closing, they're not investing in rail or infrastructure because it's not profitable because mm -hmm. they want to see profits within the first you know, year or two. And it, oh, that's not going to be profitable. So we won't build that or it's not going to turn around immediately. These are the wrong metrics to use. China, mm -hmm. it takes money from the taxpayers, from everyone, and it invests in things that everyone uses, like uh, public infrastructure, rail, parks libraries like the United States does, but it maintains them and increases the amount of them. There are always new parks, pocket parks popping up that are paid for by various governments, regional governments, local governments, city governments, central government. The reason that these are such a good idea is because they benefit everyone. So they take money from the mostly from the wealthy and a mm. little bit from the middle class, and then they build things that benefit every single person in that community. That is a kind of way of redistributing as well. Mm. And you know the famous phrase that China has, you want to build right. wealth, you build the first build the road. China's built an incredible mm -hmm. logistics infrastructure for moving goods and people all over China. Now, maybe some of those lines don't will never pay for themselves at the cost of the ticket. But you know who they do pay back? Everyone in society, when the economy is growing, when the Chinese economy is growing as a consequence of those right. networks of logistics being implemented, the economy grows and every single person benefits. And this is something that American leaders seem to not see. I think they're stuck in a rut where they can't see past very mm -hmm. specific metrics that have been set up in arguments decades ago. And there, that's why rail is falling apart. It's not about building a line from Pittsburgh to San Francisco. It's about all the benefits. And it's not about the cost of the ticket for a person or for goods moving from Pittsburgh to San Francisco. It's about all of the benefits it's going to have on every community on the way, on every small business along the way, on every medium-sized business, every large business that uses that network for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. It will pay itself back in other kinds of dividends. So I think the investment in infrastructure in people 
in, um, you know, humanity in the form of parks and libraries and other infrastructure in China that is ongoing and increasing, that is coming from mostly taxing the wealthiest people because there's graduated tax in China. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that the United States needs to do, not just for the poor people, but for the U.S. economy in the long term also. Right, for the U.S. But it takes a very strong and responsible government. Mm-hmm. And, and also it takes courage, right, to make the investment. But, you know, as you were talking, I kept thinking about this question. Like, where did all the money go in the I, U.S.? That's a great question. You know, where? I think because a lot of people are concerned about that, too. If, as you said, as President Biden said, uh, the economy is doing really great and the stock market, you know, is doing really great, then where is the wealth? How, you know, because as you were saying this, I feel <laughs> like, you know, over the decades, the U.S. has printed a lot of money. And in China, a lot of new money was printed to counter kind of to balance the trade surplus because the trade surplus comes in as U.S. dollars, right, which can be used in China. So you need new Chinese currency mm-hmm. for all those dollars. But then those, you know, a lot of money are plowed back Mm -hmm. to the country, like to the public, for the benefit of the public, especially, let's say, transportation, you know, infrastructure, and also Mm -hmm. not just infrastructure in China, but in other countries, you know, along the Belt and Road. So these are things, these are things you can see, right, from the money that the country has. What can we see in the U.S.? Where did the money go? The money that's given to the poor, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it sounds like a lot. But there are only a very small percentage of the money printed. And also, there was a piece of news about letting go of some of the debts for student loans. Did you see that the one? The Supreme Court knocked that down. It will no longer happen in its yeah. current form. Oh, so it's not going to uh, happen? Well, there may be new attempts by the White House to do it again in a different way. But okay. currently, there's no active legislation or plan to eliminate any student loans. But even if that was approved... It's only a very small percentage of all the college like college yeah. loans that students own. That's true, own. yes. And I think it was only for people who have been paying their student loans for 20 years and still paying. And it's a very small percentage. So I guess that's the question. You don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. Hopefully somebody can enlighten us. Where did the money go? I actually read a lot about this. The problem, what you're talking about with 20 and 25 years. So if you have a bachelor's degree, which is what most people have who went to university, then after 20 years of making the minimum payments regularly and not missing payments, you're theoretically supposed to have your student loans erased. The problem is that the systems in place are run by private corporations that are managing the loans on behalf of the government. Those corporations oftentimes say, oh, we lost your history. We can't do that. Or they just don't erase it. So you just keep making payments past the 20 year mark for 25 or 26 or 27 years and it never gets erased. And very few people have actually had their student debt erased in that manner come across that video i think it was a video of a young lady she was crying and into the camera she's saying something like i had seventy thousand dollars in student loans after i graduated and i've been paying them off for like over 10 years or something i don't remember the exact numbers Mm. and the last time she checked she still has a hundred and twenty thousand left to pay which was like more than what she took out as a loan at the beginning and that's like over a decade later And she's like, I cannot understand these numbers. It does not make sense to me. So I guess it's a, yeah, it is a huge problem. It absolutely is. There are people who are already retired who still have to pay their student loans out of their pension because the system is so broken. In fact, it looks like unless there are new steps taken by the U.S. government, 
that tens of millions of people in, in 10 or 20 or 30 years will be, you know, passing away with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. They will be indebted from the time wow. they went to university when they were 17 or 18 to when they pass away. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? Let's move on to something a little brighter. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. And I thought this is interesting because it surprised me. <laughs> this is by CNN. Brian, Mina, and mm. Alicia Wallace on July 10th. Florida, this is the title of the article, Florida is now America's inflation hotspot. So there's a couple lines in here that really bring it home. So Florida is America's inflation hotspot because of persistent problems with sky high housing mm. costs. So apparently an enormous amount of people rushed to move to Florida during the pandemic and they thought, oh, you know, we'll just move to somewhere where there are beaches. So everyone had the same idea, I guess. And as a consequence, housing has mm. just become unaffordable. In addition to that, a lot of people, because it's beautiful beachfront property, they've also started converting their rentals to Airbnb. So people can't afford rentals. So they are less rentals. So the rentals that do exist can charge basically whatever they want. And we have 9% inflation rate in Florida for 12 months, which ended in April. But it actually, whereas the rest of the United States reduced to about 3.5% inflation, which is almost normal, Florida is ex still experiencing 7.3% mm -hmm. inflation, which is still really unhealthy. Well... You know, everybody wants to go to Florida to retire and also <laughs> take vacations, anymore, <laughs> but maybe they won't be able to afford it anymore. And not yeah. just in Florida. Right. I think there are other cities where they've seen trends of more people moving in mm -hmm. because more people have been escaping mm -hmm. major metropolises because of rising cost. And they're heading to there are a few like popular cities I can't, like Atlanta. For example, Absolutely, yeah. inflation soared in Atlanta for the reason it did in other cities in the South, because population grew driven by Americans fleeing expensive like coastal cities. Mm. And then it brings up local prices. I can see, you know, local people complaining. <laughs> Why am I paying more? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, some cities that have historic 10 years ago, San Francisco was one of the most expensive cities to live in the world. Top five every year for several years. The price of living in San Francisco is plummeting. And this is largely owing to massive increases in oh. violent crime, homelessness, drug abuse and other problems which are plaguing the city. And now, surprisingly, people are rushing out of San Francisco, sending property prices down. Hmm. Probably same thing in Los Angeles, I'm guessing. I'm not sure. I don't know much. I know a little bit about Los Angeles, but I know that there are some industries that are stuck there. So because Hollywood is located there. So many changes yeah. globally and also individual countries. To be honest, sometimes I find it hard to keep track, stay in step with all these changes. Just reading the news. You know, just getting ready for this show every week, I probably read 200 articles a week. And even though I... And I'm talking about like 50 different newspapers all over the world and not even just in English. I have no idea how fast everything's changing on too. It's so hard to keep up with the changes. Mm. Even if you just spend all your time in media. I know. The world is changing. It's It feels like, I don't know if it's actually true, but it feels like it's changing faster than at any time in recent history. At least I think for our generation. And I do want to have some time to talk about social mobility. I did a little bit of research in this regard. Please do. Yeah. There are Please the do. 10 countries with the best social mobility. So which are the countries mm -hmm. that offer good social mobility? And this is from weforum.org. 
And it turns out that most of them, a lot of them are in Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. For example, Denmark. Denmark ranks top of the world's economic forum's new global social mm. mobility index. Mm -hmm. So this article is from three years ago, 2020. Well, no wonder refugees want to go there. Well, yeah, but it's not too big. It has its capacities. And the article starts with moving up the social economic ladder takes generations, but it happens much faster in some countries. No, it doesn't even mention that you can slide down the ladder which is what's been happening for mm -hmm. some parts of the middle class in the U.S. And so he says, if you were born mm -hmm. into a poor mm -hmm. family in Denmark, it would take at least two generations to reach the medium income. And then it would take three generations in Sweden, Finland, and Norway. And in France, it would take six generations. What? Wow. And nine in Brazil or South America. And that is if you work really, really hard, right? If you are intentionally making an effort to move up along the social ladder. But then you know, I I'm really not... want to know more about how they got this. And I, I would love to learn the details of those metrics and how they came to these conclusions. I have a recipe for social mobility, if you're interested. Oh, please do. Let's learn yeah. how to cook. <laughs> for these like uh, Nordic countries, we have to know that they're smaller countries, right? In a way, easier to manage uh, than, let's say, a country like the United States or China. So things can't just be replicated, but they are, you know, good examples. So these Nordic countries provide high quality and equitable education systems. They have strong social safety nets and inclusive institutions alongside job opportunities and good working conditions, according to the report. So it's really when it comes to class, maybe you can base this, the distinctions on income. But when it comes to social mobility, you know, money is not the only thing. For the poor and the disadvantaged to be able to move up, you need a whole social system, right? First of all, let's start with the education system. It has to be affordable and also high quality, equitable education system. And then people don't need to, you know, if they're worried about their health, they're worried about food and all these basic things all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't have the time to move up, mm -hmm. right? They're just surviving. And so it, the article says, in an economic model, it describes as stakeholder capitalism. So in other words, one that takes into account the interests of all stakeholders rather than corporate shareholders. So in the States, right, it's the corporate shareholders uh, who are like the gods now. The customers are no longer the gods <laughs> or, you know, people outside the circle of the boardroom. Mm. You know, everything is about the bottom line for the shareholders. And the article says economies that follow a model of stakeholder capitalism perform better on the index than those focused on either shareholder capitalism or state capitalism. So China is more towards the state capitalism. And it calls for policies that combine economic growth, social mobility, and environmental sustainability, particularly as the fourth industrial revolution gathers pace. And it points out in different articles on this website, weform.org, mm -hmm. it comes out that inequality is becoming a greater issue as digital revolutions will replace more and more labor, you know, along the bottom, low-skilled work. So what will they do? People who work in factories, you know, now are replenished by robots mm -hmm. or even people holding white color jobs, right? You used to write or code and now there is all these AI replacing you. What will you do, right? Which class will you go to now? Mm -hmm. Are you going down or going up? And it says the global social mobility index, which benchmarks 82 global economies, 
is designed to provide policymakers with the means to identify areas for improving social mobility. Mm-hmm. That is, if the government cares about this, right? And promoting equally shared opportunities in their economies, regardless of their development. And it explains that social mobility can be understood as the movement in personal circumstances, mm-hmm. either upwards or downwards of an individual in relation to those of their parents. And in absolute terms, it is the ability of a child to experience a better life than their parents. And this really hits at home for me. Mm-hmm. When I read this part, I was thinking about the three generations that I'm familiar with in my family. My grandparents, my parents, me. My grandparents, they were illiterate. They were farmers. And then my mom and dad's generation, most of them went to college. And that's a huge, huge achievement. It couldn't have been done with their own power. It was because there was a social environment where that was being promoted. You know, when now you are familiar with Chinese history, right? Mm-hmm. The land revolutions. So during, after the founding of New China, basically, now that I think back, a few things, great things were done. Land was given to farmers. Land was given to farmers. That sounds so normal, right? Farmers should mm-hmm. farm land. But back in the days, farmers farmed other people's land. And they only get to keep a little portion of what they had, like back in Europe, back in days. Yeah, absolutely. And also before the new China, back in China, you farmed for landlords. But after that time in new China, land given to farmers. Wow, just the power of those few words. Now, Could I mention that? Actually, it's yeah. really interesting you bring that up because I didn't actually understand the significance of this until the last couple of weeks. I got to interview a gentleman named Michael Dunford, Professor Michael Dunford. He teaches here in China. I think it's Renmin University now, but he's with the Chinese Academy of Sciences temporarily. He's from the University of Sussex and he's mm-hmm. studying Chinese economic history. And he told me, because I asked him a question, how did China raise 800 million people out of poverty since the 1980s? And he told me that my question was wrong. Hmm. He said, that the CPI has changed and that by using contemporary formulations, it looks like that. But China only raised about 200 million people out of absolute poverty since the 1980s. He said, Jason, you need to really think about in the 1950s and 60s, when they took the land from the nobles and gave it to the farmers, how many people were raised out of poverty right then within 10 years? And he said it was hundreds of millions of people who could suddenly feed themselves, clothe themselves, take care of themselves, had their own homes, and that this is not adequately understood. And China didn't raise 800 million people out of poverty since 1990. China raised a couple hundred million people out of absolute poverty. It raised hundreds millions more through socialist redistribution of land in the 1950s and 60s than current economics recognizes. Right, exactly. It's astonishing how long it takes for us to understand history, right? And probably our understanding is still very superficial. Mm. So, but back in the days, after the founding of New China, land was given to farmers. Now they can, Mm -hmm. they not only can feed themselves, they can have leftovers. And in economies, wealth is about leftovers. You have to have leftovers to be able to make more money from your money. That's why poor people stay poor, because they have nothing left over, because other people have taken their leftover Mm. to make money for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was land and also education. You know, after the founding of New China, education was available to all students, to all kids. Now, even nowadays, sometimes I see on TV, you know, basic education, like first nine years is mandatory. Now, if you some parents, you know, because they want 
more hands on the farm or they want their kids to work for money. They won't send their kids to school. And then literally like local officials, cadres and teachers will, mm -hmm. will have to go like deep into the mountains to persuade the parents, you know, to drag the kids back to <laughs> the school. So land, education and also medical care. Mm. Medical care for all people. Mm. Now, these few things, as we were talking about global social mobility index, it's not just about income. You need a social network to help the people at the bottom to really to be able to stand up. And that's why people, I guess, outside China don't appreciate how much the Chinese people feel for Chairman Mao and the revolutions. It's because it's down to the bottom. It's because, you know, there's somebody mm. who helped them stand up, who were their backbones. You know, somebody was speaking up for the people at the very bottom and nobody else had done that. You know, somebody had the courage and the power to really help the people who had nothing. Mm -hmm. And now you have land. Your kids can go to school yeah. and you have medical care. Your kids can go to college, can go abroad to study. Of course, efforts, you have to you know, work hard on your own, but now you have the opportunities. And that's why when people think about contemporary history, they think about the revolutions and other turmoil and turbulences. But why? You know, how many people ask why? Well, exactly. What were they trying to overthrow? What were they trying to bring? What new system were they trying to bring? Mm -hmm. If nobody had done that, will land be given to farmers? Yeah, what were they attempting to accomplish? Will people who have nothing finally have something to work on? It just takes that amount of energy to change the system. So... You know, it's for people who are interested in contemporary history. It's uh, got loads of interesting information. Well, I want to go switch back to America really quickly because I don't think your own plot of land is what most people for farming is what people want. This is from Pew Research. I talked about it at the beginning of the show. Uh, this is inflation, health costs, partisan cooperation among nations' top problems. It's mm -hmm. from Pew Research, June 21st, which is relatively new for one of their studies. And it talks about what do people in the United States across party lines think are the most important issues. And the number one, this is usually true, is something to do with economics. Number one is inflation. And the hmm. reality is, I, I mean, I call my mom in America all the time and my brother who's living in Nevada. And that's what they talked to me about. They talked about how crazy things cost at the grocery store. Well, tell us. Well, I mean, there's a different piece of information up here. Inflation, I have it laid out. Hmm. And this is some of the differences in cost. And this is why PPP, sorry, purchasing power parity and nominal GDP are so different from the United States and China. In the United States, local transportation ticket costs an average of $2.23 Whereas in China, it costs 39 cents. Right. Well, here we do. Yeah, we don't think too much about transportation. It's um, it doesn't cost anything here. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Even a taxi ride in the United States, $17 and 40 cents in the United in China. If you take a taxi, which not everyone does, it's $4 and 77 cents. So taxi, that's interesting because in the States, like people like I do not think about taking taxis. Well, if you're in a major city. Well, first of might. all. Well, not really. Major city like New York City. I lived there for two years. I would use the metro. And it was only when I think there was one time it was raining and I was late. And when I went to the metro, there were like long lines. <laughs> so I had to take a taxi. But then it was stuck on the way, <laughs> like all the way. And it turned out to be something like almost $20, which was crazy. Oh, wow. Right. Wait, for, is subway cost twenty dollars? No, the taxi. Oh. It wasn't even that far. But still, I, I was so shocked. I was like, I'm not taking the taxi again. 
A lot of Americans have their own car, so yes. I don't think taxis are something. I mean, unless you're in some major, some it depends on the city. Whereas in China, if you get out of the train station, a lot of people just opt for the cab because it's right there. Right. So if so. you're new to China, if you're here visiting, don't be afraid to take the taxi. It's, yeah, yeah. The price is very reasonable. Yeah, you might get congested though, like on the way. Now, if you look at all mm -hmm. the cost of food, it's really interesting. Almost everything costs at least double, triple, and sometimes quadruple, except milk. Right. Where milk is. Strangely, about double the cost in China instead of the United no. States. I guess it's because mm -hmm. America has a ton of cattle. So milk is more expensive in China, but everything else, bread, rice, eggs, cheese, steak, apples, bananas, or everything else is more expensive in the United States. So people who are, you know, mm. they're making minimum wage, they go to the grocery store and they pay their rent and maybe their student loans. They have nothing left at the end of that. The interesting thing about the, about milk is um, I think milk is still relatively new to China, like to most parts of China, the, like the major portion of the population, relatively new as in, you know, became more and more popular in the past few decades, like dairy products in general, because back in the days, you know, people, when they want it, like a drink filled with protein, they would go for a soy milk mm. made from soybeans. You know, it's very healthy and it's very nutritious. And it was only in recent decades that people started to popularize milk. And there's still debates on whether or not, which is better, what's better for you. But as we mentioned in previous... There are books that show that milk is not good for you. And there are books that show that milk right, is good for so, you. So eh. if you, you can choose which book you prefer. <laughs> but we are out of time. I think the what I'd like to say from what we said in our argument is that you know, it is becoming unfair in the United States and people know and something, you know, people need to look for solutions to solve the obvious growing divide between the haves and the have nots. Anything else you want to mention, baby? I just want to say that for our show, it's for, you know, sharing and discussion, right? It's not for conclusions. We're just pitching in our uh, the information we know and our thoughts on it. And we welcome our, our listeners comments, too. Yeah. Please email us at we love the bridge at gmail.com and we'd love to read your comments on the air. Yes, thank you definitely. for your time, listeners. Thank you for your time, baby. Thank you, Jason. See you guys next time. Bye.